0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you this morning. I hope that you are all doing well. And I'm looking forward to today's Bible study. We are doing Revelation chapter 15. We're actually going to finish chapter 14 that we didn't get to, that third section of 14, before we hit chapter 15 today. But I'm excited to be with you. Before we get started, just a little bit of the normal housekeeping. Would love for you to be a part of this digital community. So make sure that you sign up for our email newsletter. I will say more about that because we sent a nice attachment on Monday to help us understand the Johns in the first century. Um, but if you do not get the Monday reminder emails from Meredith, then I encourage you to visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. There you can click a link, email Meredith, get your name on this list, and we would love for you to be a part of this group. Now, this is also an opportunity for me to say that we do have a new podcast The audio of this study is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you need help signing up for a podcast and would like to use one, then you can visit SaintMichael.org/rbs with some instructions there, or just simply search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you get your podcasts, and you should be able to subscribe. And although there aren't a lot of earlier episodes. There are six or ten there right now. Um, the plan is over the next month or so to backload all of those audio recordings. So we've got years of studies. So if you missed a few a few years ago, then you can go back and listen or maybe just listen again. Why not? We change. The Bible helps us all along the way. Now before we get started today, let's open with a prayer. So we'll take just a moment of silence as we kind of center ourselves. And I want to invite you to think about the people in your life today who need special prayers. They may need healing. They may need to be reminded of God's presence. They may need a bit of hope. Put those people in your hearts and minds today as we pray together. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together and we ask that as you open our hearts and minds, that your spirit may fill us up, that we remain open to doing the work you have given us to do. Today, as we continue to study the vision of a future in which you make all things right, we want to keep that hope alive today. Keep that hope alive for ourselves and to keep that hope alive for those we love. Today, we ask special prayers upon those we hold in our hearts and minds those who need your healing touch, those who need reminded of your presence, and those who need reminded of your hope. May all of them and all of us be filled with your Spirit that we may extend your hands of love into the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I noted earlier, every Monday we get emails from Meredith reminding us of what we will be studying this coming week so two things first is next week is spring break for dallas schools which means i will be gone and there will be no bible study next week that's the one week when we do not have bible study this spring so just skip next week and two weeks from today we will be back together for chapter 16 and in the home stretch of finishing out revelation which we will do so in early May. If you don't have the Bible study bookmark with the schedule, you can get that at stmichael.org RBS. The other thing I wanted to say about the emails on Mondays is we get a chance very rarely, but this past Monday was one of those, where if I can prepare something helpful for you in writing, I can do that. And so last week we were asked to clarify all of the different Johns in the Bible. And so what I did is I kind of took a look at the Johns we need to know in the first century. And we started with John the Baptist, obviously not too confused with the other Johns because, you know, he was beheaded. Um, So we started with John the Baptist, early part of the first century, who was obviously alive when Jesus was, and then we keep going. And I covered five different Johns, including John the Baptist, John the Apostle, John Mark, who potentially wrote the Gospel of Mark, John the Evangelist, and John of Patmos. Those are the Johns I'd like you all to be familiar with. So if you got the email on Monday, that handout should be there. I hope that it is helpful. Um, I tried to be succinct and relate the Johns to something that you probably know, whether a gospel or a letter or something like that. If you did not get that email on Monday, then like I said, visit our website, send Meredith a note, And she will send that to you and add you to our email list. I hope it is a helpful handout. And if you have any questions or comments about it, feel free to make them right now. In fact, make any comments or ask any questions you would like. It helps me direct where we go with today's study. All right. Today, we've got two sections. Chapter 15 is a bit short. We're going to do the third section of chapter 14 and then go right into what is really just a single section, all of chapter 15 together. So part one today, which is the end of 14, is going to be the earth's harvest. And then part two, which is all of chapter 15, will be the seven last plagues. So we're going to start with the earth's harvest and then go to the seven last plagues. Let's jump in. Chapter 14 will begin at verse 14. So chapter 14, verse 14, and we'll read to the end. No, you know what? We're going to do a part of it and then the other part. Here we go. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. Then I, John, looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth." is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. We'll pause there, because I want to start by acknowledging that the end of chapter 14, the verses we haven't quite read yet, can at first be scary right? The the end of chapter 14 sounds on the surface at a first reading to be very scary. Chapter 14 is seen and understood as really the beginning of the final judgment, all right? So we know in Revelation that there's a lot of judgment talk, and this is really kind of the beginning of the end when we reach what we would call the final judgment, kind of the capital F, capital J, final judgment. This is what is often... Represented in art and can be seen in classic art in many, many different forms. I would have an image for you today, but for whatever reason, I cannot figure out how to display a vertical image through this software. So, what happens is they stretch it wide and smoosh it tall, and it just doesn't look good. And so, Google it around. Google Revelation Final Judgment. You're going to see some really wonderful classical, Renaissance, and other. Um, paintings that represent this. Um, You can see this on one of the end walls of the Sistine Chapel, if you've ever been there. And it's, it's something that has captured the imagination of people for centuries, and still does. This final judgment is going to occupy us for the first half of today's Bible study. So let's keep reading in chapter 14, finish this chapter out, and then we'll look at what judgment really means writ large. So let's jump in with verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth, and gathered the vintage of the earth. And he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 14. Gory, horrible, Uh, very graphic. This is what I'm talking about when I mention that it can be scary. We are here at the end. The earth is ripe for the harvest and we have these angels swinging sharp sickles and grapes are brought up. The earth is harvested. This vintage of the earth is put into a wine press crushed and then blood flows from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Come on. I mean, this is horrible. It is easy to understand that revelation, when you just kind of read through it nice and quickly and you don't really focus too much on what's below the surface, has been used to scare people for a long time. And I say that to not to say that Every person who ever did that was intending to be manipulative, but I do think that revelation has been used to manipulate people over the centuries, to scare them into having faith. Now, I think that some people might say, however one gains faith, however one begins to follow Christ, that's not important, right? In a sense, the ends justify the means. So if someone finds faith in Christ, they commit themselves, they work, In their life as disciples of christ and do good in the world then if they did that because they were afraid eh what's the problem i'd like to offer that revelation is not meant to strike fear into people who might find faith in god but instead it's really exactly opposite of that it's meant to provide hope for the people who are seeking to have faith in god We know, and remember last week I read some passages from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we know that it has been used to strike fear into the hearts of people, countless people, in order to push them into faith. But what we see here is not meant to strike fear, but meant to be about the hope of salvation, right? This is not condemnation this is salvation. This is saving of the people and should be good. Let's consider the theological imagery here. In verse 19 and 20, we see the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city. Now this image of winepress with blood flowing is certainly graphic, but one thing is clear. The vintage of the earth actually implies something good, right? If we talk about vintage, are we talking about trash or bad or gross? No, vintage means something good. Vintage actually means something especially good, even great. The vintage of the earth has been thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God and the wine press was trodden outside the city that vintage from the earth is trodden outside the city now that at first glance might not mean a lot but outside the city is a code that John's readers would have known so if we put ourselves in the first century then the people reading these letters would have had a little trigger a bell would have gone off in their mind outside the city because what else was done outside the city? What blood flowed outside the city? The answer is Jesus's blood flowed outside the city. If we recall the story of Jesus's passion, Jesus was put on trial. He was convicted, sentenced to death, given his cross or beam to carry outside the city. If you go to Jerusalem today, the old city is basically a big square. The church of the Holy Sepulchre sits on top of where Jesus was both crucified and buried. Today, that's within the walls of the old city. In Jesus's lifetime, in the first century, it was not. What is now sort of the northwest quadrant of the old city of Jerusalem from your perspective over here, right? The northwest quadrant. Today is kind of the Christian quarter, but it was in the first century outside the walls. It was a rock quarry. When Jesus is led outside the city to be crucified, he's crucified on top of a rock in a quarry. Why? Because crucifixion is meant to be a terrorist act. Rome did not crucify people because they had no better way to kill them. Plenty of easier, cleaner ways, less intense ways to kill people. They sought, in the killing of bad people, in the execution of people who have offended the state, wanted to scare the pants off of every other person who might follow in their footsteps. How that was done is by taking people like Jesus outside the city to a place where they could crucify in an elevated position. This rock quarry, you ready for this? Some of you may not know this and this may kind of like blow your mind. Go out to the rock quarry and how is rock quarried, right? you Just kind of dig it up, right? Take the topsoil away, take all the dirt away, and then you begin to literally cut stone out of the side of the hill or this little mountain there in Jerusalem. And as the builders, the stonemasons, cut stones out of the rock, they would only take the stones that were good for building. In other words, they would only take the stones that were solid. So as they cut bricks, effectively, out of the rocks, they would cart them away and use them in construction projects. Well, occasionally, as these stonemasons were cutting rocks out of the side of the mountain for building supplies for those bricks, they would come across rock that was cracked and they would reject it. When the builders rejected stone, it was very common for them to just leave it there. But if you think about the effort it takes to cut stone, why would they expend that energy and effort cutting out the bad stone? Instead, they would just cut around it. And so if you imagine a rock quarry, it wouldn't be this perfectly hewn flat hole in the ground like we might see today with our big machinery. Instead, it would kind of be picked over. And there could be small but maybe even large little plinths almost, little columns of stone that were cracked and rejected by the builders and just left there. They would hewn around that cracked stone. So when you think about attempting to terrorize people with an execution, what's the best place to crucify a person on one of those little outcroppings left by the stonemasons, by the builders? When Jesus is taken outside the city, he is elevated on one of those outcroppings, literally on A stone that the builders rejected so that when he is crucified, he has an elevated place so all of the people in Jerusalem who cared to look could see the gory terror of crucifixion and be scared to never act out of line or else that might happen to them. Jesus is taken outside the city. Where he is crucified, where he bleeds. And what John does here in Revelation is he takes that image of going outside the city to represent what is actually the saving act of God. The reaping that is happening here on the earth is a reaping that is about judgment but judgment that is meant to save and reorder and heal and fix, not about judgment that is simply condemnation. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about that right now, but I'm going to pause because some of that may have been new and you may be interested in asking a few questions or making a comment. And so I do want to encourage you, if you're on a social media platform, go on in, make your comments. And if you're on a platform that doesn't have a comment section, then you can pop Meredith an email right now in the middle of class and she'll make sure that I receive those questions and those comments live here so I can perhaps even direct the teaching to be more helpful. Coffee is good. I am caffeinated this morning if you couldn't tell. So, judgment is about healing and wholeness and peace not about condemnation what do i mean in the commentary that we're using with nt wright i am i was actually really uh, helped by his explanation around judges he used this image of a little town in the middle of nowhere without enough people without enough of an economy to have their own set of judges. So what would happen in these rural communities, which could have easily been Israel and plus other places, and we, we know in the history of um, the, the first phase of Israel prior to the exile, there was a whole series of judges. Judges are misunderstood as being people who condemned. Really what a judge does, even though maybe it's not always what happens nowadays, but a judge's role is really meant to take stock of everything that they're presented with and then make a judgment about how to restore order. And by that, what I mean is if somebody wrongs someone else, they come before a judge, plead their case, make an argument, try to recall the facts, and then a judge looks at everything laid out and tries to make it right. They pass a judgment that is not only meant to condemn, it's actually meant to repair the relationship. Now, we miss that a lot in our modern context because we often, we, (laughs) what do I wanna say? We, as Americans, don't often look at justice As repairing relationships. Instead, we look at justice as punishing the wrongdoer, right? And I think we can all just be honest and say that's really kind of how we approach this. Someone does something wrong, they need to be punished for doing the wrong thing, right? The biblical understanding of justice is much different than that because it's grounded in a relationship. We saw this on display in the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. What was so remarkable about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions is that the starting point was not punishing the wrongdoers. The starting point was repairing the wrong done in a relational way. That concept is so wild. It's so far from how we think that it captured the imaginations of Christians all over the world, beyond Christianity, because here we had a group of people under the system of apartheid so profoundly wronged, and yet the repairing of the wrong was not simply punishing those who did the wrong, but bringing together those who did the wrong with those who were wronged and Hopefully, didn't always happen, but the hope was you put those people together, often face to face. And if there was, if someone had died, a relation, a person, a relative of some kind, would sit face to face with the person who did the wrongdoing, and they would seek forgiveness. And it was in that forgiveness where judgment healed something wrong. In the Bible, the idea of judgment is never about condemnation, discipline, and punishment. The idea of judgment is absolutely grounded in the sense of righting a wrong, of bringing peace and order back to a situation that was chaotic. So back to what N.T. Wright says in our commentary, he uses this little rural town as an example of, say, somebody steals someone's goat or somebody does someone wrong or something like that they may not have a judge in that little town to make a judgment on how to repair what was broken in the moment. But instead, they may have to wait a year or two or three or 10 for a judge to come along and actually pass a judgment on the wrongs done by the people in that community. So if you put yourself in the position of someone who does wrong, You don't really like a judge, right? But if you put yourself in the position of someone who's trying to do the right thing, someone who seeks to not hurt other people, seeks to be fair and just and relational and all of those good things, if you had been wronged after you had tried to do all the good and right things, how would you welcome a judge? Probably with a lot of enthusiasm, right? Because you're hoping that a judge would come and restore order. You're hoping that a judge would come on the scene and actually make things right. For the people who do wrong, judges aren't exactly who they wanna see. But for people who do right, for people who seek to be virtuous, the arrival of a judge in order to pass judgment is so hopeful. A judge brings this promise of hope and order out of the chaos. Does that all make sense? I hope it does. Um, John would have been keenly aware that what his people needed most was a word of hope. We've said this over and over and over again, right? John knows his people. John's in prison. So John knows the kind of hardship that his people are going to go through. These Jesus followers in the first century are not going to have an easy road to walk. And John knows that they could succumb to fear. But here he gives them a word of hope that there's nothing really to fear in the earth. The way John does that, the way John offers this word of hope might seem a little intense to us. John, rather than just saying, hey, keep hope alive, right? Or, oh, turn that frown upside down, right? John doesn't do that kind of shallow stuff. John, in a sense, presents a horrible scene and says, even this... Can be worked out for the good A reaping into a wine press with blood flowing 200 miles five feet deep, even with that horror, God can work out the good. right We, we know that God works all things out for the good, right? Um, that is something that we as 21st century Americans, right? 21st century affluent Americans, let's be honest, that we need reminded of all the time. Why I say that is, and and I say this with all due sensitivity, what do we really know about pain and fear? All of us experience pain and fear. And obviously, emotions are relative. But I want us to generously consider that we do not live the kind of pain and fear a normal first century person would have lived. We certainly do not live the kind of pain and fear that a poor first century Jesus follower would have lived under the Roman Empire. For John, using a graphic image like a river of blood is actually a hopeful way of saying, there is nothing that will happen to you in this life, on this earth, in this world, that God cannot turn into something good. That's the good news. That's the hope out of the pain, is that nothing that will happen to us, no amount of pain and fear that we experience, even a five-foot-deep, 200-mile-wide river of blood can keep God from being able to turn all things for the good. Man, that's some hopeful words right there. We sometimes forget. It's easy for us to forget how hopeful this message of Revelation can really be because it's hard for us to even conceive of the pain and fear of a first century Jesus follower. But we glimpse that fear and pain, and when we do... I hope that this kind of message really gets down deep in our bones so that when we experience pain and fear, when we experience uncertainty, tragedy, and the like, we've got this reserve of hopefulness, this reserve of vision that God's with us. And that God can turn every bit of our pain into the joy, right? Joy comes in the morning. And where we are right now in this Revelation story is darkness. And yet, joy comes. Okay. Mm -mm -mm. I think that's probably enough for this first section. I'm looking at the time. Um, I don't want to talk too far beyond. Um, I see a couple comments here. Um, Kimberly says, I'm reminded of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that is exactly right. Um, We see capstone, cornerstone. We see this idea repeated in Scripture. Um, Obviously, the Gospels pull out these Old Testament references in order to give context around Jesus. Remember in the first century, people are trying to answer a pretty fundamental question, who's Jesus? Jesus doesn't look like the Messiah that the Jews were expecting, and yet something remarkable has happened. And so it takes a few hundred years for the followers of Jesus to actually work out how Jesus fits in the great puzzle of salvation. And so what they do is they go back and they look at these promises made, right? The songs and the Psalms, the thoughtful poetry of Proverbs, the words of the prophets before, during, and after the exile. I mean, they look at all of these things and then they begin to make connections, connecting dots between what had been promised, these glimpses of the divine that happened in their history with things Jesus said, actions Jesus took or actions taken against Jesus. And they began to connect all of those little dots. So by the time the gospels were written, decades after Jesus' actual life, they had begun to draw some of these conclusions. So when you see in the Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, people are like, wait a minute, Jesus was taken outside the city, put on top of one of those stones that the builders had rejected. Hello, look at that connection. And so those dots are now being connected in these brilliant ways. And people are beginning to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises and these prophecies. It's remarkable, the kind of work that they did um, that still resonates so powerfully for us today. Um, John asks, if crucifixion was restricted to political offenders, why were Barabbas and the other thief crucified? So crucifixion is not restricted to political offenders. So I didn't say it was restricted to political offenders. I said Jesus was a political offender. Crucifixion was used as a warning. Um, Not everyone was crucified. It's not the only way that Rome executed people, but it was a way that Rome executed people, particularly when Rome wanted to strike fear into those who were not a part of them. And so you've likely seen, you know, in historic movies and things like that, you might, (laughs) sorry, this is a little graphic for Bible study, um, but you might see, you know, a long road with decapitated heads on pikes, right? (laughs) Empires, ancient empire, well, I say ancient empires, empires tend to Communicate their strength in the clearest ways possible. Part of the strength of an empire is deterrence, right? So when an army would defeat another army, they wouldn't simply walk away. They would try to create a scene that was a graphic representation of their strength. Similarly, what Rome did, and Rome was not the only empire that did this, they actually used means of death like crucifixion to remind everybody that they were strong enough to do whatever they wanted, to whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And so if you're thinking about acting against us, look over there and think again. That's the way they used crucifixion. Um let me see. Is the blood supposed to symbolize Jesus' blood and that is the hope? <laughs> Good Steve. Um meh, no. Nah. No. Well, I will say how, it is always an interpretation, okay? No. I I will land on. The blood's not really the blood of Jesus, but it is through blood that one is cleansed and made whole. Um, We know that the Jews, plenty of ancient traditions, used the idea of sacrifice to worship God. And the reason that animal, maybe human sometimes, sacrifice was used In worship of God is because blood was understood to be the life. Um, When a body had no blood, a body was dead. And so, blood represented the life force of any living creature. And so, giving that life force back to God is what sacrifices were all about. So, you might remember that at the temple, People would sacrifice animals. Well, the priests would sacrifice animals on behalf of the people. And sacrificing an animal meant you bring that animal in and you bleed the animal as an offering to God. It was the blood that was the offering, not the body. And so, what would happen take, for example, a family shows up for the Passover, they bring a sheep with them. That sheep is taken in by the priests, the throat is slit the blood pours out as an offering to God, and then the body of the lamb is thrown out, basically. You certainly probably know that it was considered improper to eat the flesh of an animal sacrificed. But if you weren't Jewish, or if you didn't practice Judaism, or if you didn't care, or if you were starving then actually eating the flesh of those animals would have been a gift because they've been bled out. They are effectively ready to be butchered, for lack of a better word, and then eaten. There are strict eating laws that prohibit good, faithful Jews from eating those animals. But we see as part of the growth of Christianity that There's a reimagining and a reevaluation of those laws Um, for one reason. Christians didn't need to make animal sacrifices, and so you didn't really have those. But even if you had them, you know, if God has made something clean, then we can eat it. Remember that scene in Acts where Peter sees that vision and all of the stuff comes down, um, split hooves and shellfish and whatever, that Jews aren't supposed to eat, and God says, eat, and Peter says, oh my goodness, I can't eat that, God, because... You said not to eat it. And then God says, excuse me, I just told you to eat. And if I tell you something is clean and you should eat it, eat it. And Peter kind of in that moment understands, oh my goodness, God's doing something new here. Jesus isn't just doing the same Jewish stuff. Jesus is doing something totally different. And that really is a pivotal moment for Peter who begins to open up his mind to the grandness and the completeness of what God actually did through the person of Jesus. And I'm on a total tangent. So sorry, I will rein myself back in because we do need to actually get to chapter 15 today. So thank you. Those are great questions. Um, Keep them coming. Let's jump into chapter 15. This is the second of the two sections for today. And this second section is about the seven last plagues. So let's look at the first four verses of chapter 15. Here we go. Then I, John, saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. All right, so here we have in the beginning, first few verses of chapter 15, this nod toward an acknowledgement of God's good judgments. So as noted at the end of chapter 14, what we get here is this image of God as judge making order out of chaos, making wrongs right. That's really what God as judge does. That's what this final judgment is really all about. At this point in the story of Revelation, we are full on, the train has left the station and has caught all the momentum into this final big act of judgment in the world. Now, that judgment and the concept of judgment, as I've noted before, um, is not meant to be scary unless, of course, you're the bad people, right? So for the good people... Those who've been trying to be faithful do the right thing and keep the commandments and all the other stuff. What we see is a welcome and a wholeness and a healing represented by the judge. For the people who do wrong stuff, they don't want to see the judge. But for us, right, because aren't we supposed to be trying to do good? We like the judge. Let's keep going with verse 5. After this, I, John, looked and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues robed in pure bright linen with golden sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. This passage, this chapter 15, pivots toward the action that is yet to come. You see, chapter 14, we had that harvest. The harvest is really about the gathering of the martyrs, those who are faithful. They have been reaped in that good harvest. And now they are beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We receive this vision of what God then has yet to do. John sees the temple of the tent open, but not to take people in, but to unleash these seven last plagues. Now the temple of the tent is an important image in Judaism. Recall that The Israelites, after having been taken out of bondage in Egypt, came to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there Moses received the Ten Commandments. And then what was to be done with those commandments? They built an ark, like a big box. In the ark went the commandments, and that ark was held in the very center of a big tent that sat there with the people in the wilderness. Now that tent and the ark itself was where God touched the earth. We see in Exodus and beyond that as the people are traveling in the wilderness, whenever they erect the tent, God's spirit visibly comes down into the tent, into that holy of holies right there in the center core of that tent where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And then the people were to stay there until God left, right? That cloud kind of went away that tent became the temple. We know the ark was carried all over the wilderness, carried into Canaan with Joshua, brought to Jerusalem by David, and then placed in the first temple that Solomon built. That ark represented God on earth for the Jews, especially in the first temple period, but the second temple period as well, the the second temple being the one rebuilt after the exile, there was the understanding that in that core of the temple, God physically touched the earth. The concept that God was everywhere or wherever we were or wherever we pray, that was not present at the turn of the millennium right, in that early first century. When Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, their God is in the midst of them, that's new. Because God wasn't where we were. God was in the temple, right? God was where the ark was in the temple. And so that's why Jews from all over the world, right, all over the empire, would travel to Jerusalem on these holy days to go to where God was, at the temple, the capital T temple. It was only after... The temple was destroyed a second time, that the Jews really began to develop what would become a synagogue culture, where synagogue was the little temples, right? Before that, you would never call a synagogue a temple. There was a temple. After the temple was destroyed, synagogues began to be called the temple... But it was always understood it was not like the temple, it was kind of the little t temple. That's where Jews could gather because the temple had been destroyed. And yet, Jews still from all over the world travel to Jerusalem to get as close as they can to what would have been the core center, holy of holies, in the temple. Today, the closest Jewish people can get to that place is one of the retaining walls that holds up the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And we know the name of that wall as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. It's not a wall of the Temple. It's, simple, it's simply a retaining wall that held up the mountain or hill on which the Temple had been built. That's as close as Jews can get today to what would have been the core center of Solomon's second temple. And here what we have is John using the image, the temple of the tent, to describe what he sees in this heavenly vision and what God is therefore about to unleash. Okay, the temple is typically where people go to meet God. But when this core temple is opened, this, the, temp, the tent of the temple is opened, it's not opened in order to welcome people in. What John sees in this vision is that there in the temple, the angels are given the seven bowls of wrath. And those seven bowls of wrath represent the seven last plagues and those seven last plagues are meant to actually begin the final big action against evil in the world. You might recall that it's been a couple weeks since we've talked about the dragon and the beast. We kind of left the dragon and the beast down on earth doing whatever bad stuff that they've been doing. And although we've seen a reaping, we've not yet seen what I mean, anyone would expect, which is at some point, that dragon that had been thrown to the earth, the dragon who raised up and gave his power to the beast to reign on earth, will have to be dealt with. God needs to go down, needs to extend power from heaven in order to deal with, to end, to defeat, to erase the dragon and the beast. Out of this temple comes the seven bowls of wrath, the seven plagues that will be final. And these angels are to carry out these final plagues against Babylon, against the dragon and the beast. It's time for the destroyers to be destroyed. The martyrs have been reaped. They have been pressed with this hopefulness of this good judgment that brings peace out of the chaos. And now the beast and the dragon have something coming. Now, let me see. I think that's probably about as far as we needed to go today. I told you chapter 15 is really kind of brief. The big idea in chapter 15 is this pivot. Right? We've had this reaping of the martyrs, and now what we get is God almost readying the troops, Right, these seven angels receiving the tools they need in order to bring God's righteous judgment to the earth against those who have done wrong. Right? That final judgment is bringing order back from the chaos that has been reaped by the dragon and the beast. All right, big day today. I really liked all of this. Um, Chapter 14 was a big chapter. I'm glad we had a little extra time um, to deal with all of that. So as we end today, I encourage you to think on this. Um, You know, consider, consider what you're afraid of. Consider what scares you. Consider the moments in your life when you've made wrong choices, right? I mean, anyone who's a parent, I mean, anybody, because we've all been kids, have likely heard somebody say to us, hopefully our parents, but maybe others, that you're a good person, but you did a bad thing. It's those actions that we all take, we have all done plenty, that we know are wrong, and yet, how do we make them right? A child's way of looking at making a wrong right is about discipline getting in trouble, right? Anyone who's had a child who has done something wrong and made a bad choice, you know what are they afraid of? Getting in trouble. That's not the way God works. Making a wrong choice against one another or against God is not should not make us fear getting in trouble. Instead, I hope that a maturing of our own identity, especially our faith identity, brings us to a point when We understand repentance and return and even judgment as a healing. It's a promise of the wrongs made right, not of discipline and judgment. So, you know, we've got two weeks now before we come back together to look at chapter 16. Think about, pray about moments when you've done wrong, when you've made mistakes. How do you approach? Righting those wrongs, not in a punitive way, but in a hopeful, relational, peaceful, ordered way that brings about God's goodness through us. All right, my friends, I hope you all stay safe and healthy. I'll be out traveling next week. And if you are, be safe as well. I will see you back here in two weeks. We will do chapter 16. Until then, God bless you all.